Hi, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun, and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists, and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy, and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, my friends, and welcome back to another episode. This one is everything that they didn't teach us at school, but they should have. Because the truth is, just because something feels good doesn't mean that it's going to be good. And honestly, if we were taught the difference between chemistry and compatibility at school, I think all of us would have saved ourselves a lot of time. A lot of heartbreak, a lot of bad dates, a lot of falling in love with people that we shouldn't, and a lot of being led on by people that just because it felt good, we thought it was going to be good. Now hear me out. We confuse chemistry with compatibility. We confuse attention with intention. We confuse intensity with intimacy. But the whole time, we are never taught what compatibility is. Because if you'd asked me, maybe even a year ago, what compatibility was, I probably wouldn't have been able to tell you. In fact, I'm actually still on this journey with you right now, working out what compatibility is, how much compatibility is enough compatibility to justify building a life with someone or to justify the amount of chemistry you have with someone or even the amount of love you have with someone. Because what I've learned And one of the saddest things about life, actually, is that sometimes love just isn't enough and chemistry definitely isn't enough. And that can really, really break your heart. Now, chemistry, 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 chemistry. I don't need to tell you what chemistry is because we all fucking know. Because chemistry ruins our lives repeatedly because it has us doing really dumb things. And I mean really dumb It has us overlooking every red flag in the book. But the really annoying thing, the really annoying thing is that truly, with good chemistry, the sex and the intimacy is so damn good that sometimes nothing else matters. The rest of the world seems to fade out a little bit because all you can focus on is the good and how good it feels in your body and it overclouds the bad. It overclouds the red flags. The chemistry is so good that there's no time for conscious thinking because your body is alive and you literally think this is it. This is it. And when you're in that state of mind, pacing goes out the window, conscious awareness goes out the window, your attachment trauma literally takes over the show and everything can just be a very, very slippery slope. Because you really can start to engage with, be intimate with, try to chase people that are just not right for you, that are not compatible with you, and that are never going to truly be in your life in five years' time, supporting you in a happy, loving, amazing way. So understanding the difference between chemistry 
compatibility is the starting point of starting to unravel some of these messy, messy, hot, heavy dating cycles that we have been caught up in for as long as we can remember. Now, don't get me wrong. Both are really important. You need to have both. You have to have chemistry and compatibility, but not in the kind of 90% chemistry, 10% compatibility ratio. I am talking more like a 60% compatibility, 40% chemistry. And if the chemistry is right and the chemistry is passionate and respectful and loving and aligned and communicative, that 40% will feel much, much more. So you will have a relationship that is fueled by love and intimacy and passion, but is based on the foundations of compatibility. And compatibility is alignment, not attraction. So you need both. Now, in the coming few weeks, we are about to release an incredible episode, which is about the biology of the spark, the biology of the ick, and why you feel this deep attraction sometimes to people that are so wrong for you, but you feel like a uncomfortable aversions to the people that are really good for you or the nice guy or the nice girl. And that episode is going to be the perfect follow on episode to this, because when you understand what is truly happening in your body, it can help you rationalize it and bring a level of conscious awareness to what is going on. So you can start to consciously break and change and re wire those cycles that are starting from within you and that were formed so, so many years ago. But today, we are going into the foundational pieces of compatibility, chemistry, and toxic chemistry. But when you start to separate these two slightly abstract concepts, that is when the beginning of the rest of your dating life begins. But don't get me wrong, it's not easy This concept of compatibility, it's so abstract, it's so difficult. You can be compatible on tons of things, but there can be one or two things that you're not compatible on, which can literally decimate the entire relationship. Or you can be compatible on like a lot of things, but just not have something that you really need to get the relationship over the finish line. So I think today's episode is going to be really helpful in terms of us understanding all of those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that go together to form the concept of compatibility. And the truth is, the more and more that I look back at my relationships, I'm able to actually look into the intricacies of compatibility in a way that I wasn't ever able to when I was in the moment. And the truth is, is that when I've finally been able to move through a breakup and got over like the intense heartbreak... Hindsight has always allowed me to see that actually we weren't that compatible after all. And there was definitely always things going on in my relationship that were fundamental differences between us that were always going to have been hard to navigate. And maybe I overlooked these inconsistencies and incompatibilities from day one because the first year or two years of the relationship and why we met and why we were first attracted to each other and why we first fell in love was all based on the chemistry. Now, I don't regret any of these for any moment because I have learned so many lessons through heartbreak, through love, through life. But the truth is, the older we get and the more that we really actually are thinking about a longer term relationship or a life partner, we need to be starting to think about compatibility alongside chemistry and not just thinking that because we have chemistry that the rest is going to fall into place. So for example, take the ex that came from a different cultural background to me and a social class to me and 
It really opened my eyes to my experience of my privilege as a white woman who was born into a middle class home. And it took me a very long time to understand that my intense, burning ambition to change my life, build businesses, change the world was something that was so far off the radar of someone that had escaped their country as refugees as a young child. And it's these things, it's these lived experiences that can change who we are as human beings and that can change how we relate to others. And ultimately, things that can have happened in our childhood with our parents, with intergenerational experiences, can define the rest of our romantic lives and non-romantic lives. And that, for me, has been a huge learning ever since I exited that relationship. And truly, the chemistry that I had in that relationship was out of control. The connection was unbelievable. The love that we had for each other was the most life-changing, redemptive experience for both of us. But the sad truth is that, like I said at the beginning of this, love is not enough because underneath the chemistry, there was not compatibility in some areas that we needed it. We were never going to be compatible in the type of life that we wanted to build or the type of life that we wanted to share because ultimately we were so different. We were driven by so many different things in our own lives that it was almost impossible for us to meet in the middle and build a life that was fulfilling for both of us without making the other person feel that we weren't sacrificing some part of our truth or our identity or the vision of life that we had had around what we individually saw life to be. And honestly, if anyone has been in that situation before, my heart breaks for you because it's not spoken about enough, this concept of love not being enough, because you can have so much love for someone, so much chemistry for someone. But if you don't have enough of the compatibility boxes ticked or you do have the one or two pieces that break the whole model of love it's honestly one of the heart, most heartbreaking things in the world because it's so easy to move on from someone when you hate them when they cheated on you when you cheated on them but when there's just a disconnection in compatibility but so much love and so much chemistry I think that is so so difficult to navigate and that's something that I learned firsthand but it wasn't just that boyfriend that taught me that chemistry isn't compatibility. I have learned this in so many other relationships. Let's take the guy who only cared about money, who only cared about what Rolex was on his wrist, what Omega was in his watch drawer, what muscles were popping on that day. And I honestly will never forget the look of confusion when I would make charitable donations, like giving to charity, which I love to do. Like I sponsor a child in Nigeria, I sponsor a grandma in Somalia, I pay to shelter the homeless charity and a ton of other things. I remember when he just looked at me and said, honestly, what the fuck are you doing? And I was just like, I don't know how I can ever really spend the rest of my life with someone that shames me for when I'm trying to help the world or I'm trying to help other people. Because if you don't feel any kind of empathy in the way that I do, how are we ever going to raise children on the same page? Or let's take the ex that was so avoidant and so ambitious that whilst we connected so deeply on like a hustle grind supportive mode for each other, which was so, so exciting, there were parts of compatibility that were missing, like my need for emotional connection and quality time and words of affirmation and all of those things that he couldn't give me that meant that I truly could never really flourish in that relationship. And I think that's what's so difficult about compatibility is like on the surface. Some of it can feel so good, but there can be these things underneath the surface that really over time 
start to become more and more like the elephant in the room that you're not talking about. And that if you don't ever face up to, they ultimately can become the death of a relationship. And as I was preparing for this episode, it really got me thinking like a lot. And I've come to the conclusion that I actually think the concept of a relationship is a really bizarre one because it's based on the concept of relating. So that's relating between two vastly different human beings that have a million trillion different thought processes going on in our heads at all times and who have lived 1,000 different lived experiences from the moment that we were born today with all of these different neural pathways like wired into us, but that we're here today in the present, showing up, trying to connect, trying to communicate, and trying to relate over shared experiences and feelings and ideas, and also this shared experience of just day-to-day life. And for me, I think it's that word, shared. I think it's truly the ability to relate that involves shared experiences, shared feelings. And so for me, I've concluded compatibility is an ability to connect and relate over the most number of shared points possible. But that doesn't mean you're going to agree on everything. It doesn't mean you're going to relate on everything. And that is okay. So for me, compatibility is about finding someone who has a great deal of common ground with you, but also someone that could hold space for you when you guys enter territory together where there is less common ground. And honestly, my biggest learning is that no one is ever truly 100% compatible with us. We are human beings, not jigsaw puzzles. But if you can get someone that's 85% of the way there, that's a pretty good fucking jigsaw. I hope you love today's episode. It's important. It's valuable. It's sensitive. And if you do, please share it with someone who might learn something from it. Please share it on your story and please hit follow or subscribe wherever you are listening to this. It would mean the world to me and truly help the mission that I am on to help you live a happier, more fulfilled life. I'll see you on the other side and I love you guys so much. Now, enough from me. Let's get into it. Okay, so this is the episode that we have been meaning to do forever. It has been requested so many times, so we are so happy that you are here listening to it with us. We have been telling you at length that chemistry is not compatibility. And today we're going to run through the six things that are chemistry, not compatibility. And my oh my, you are probably going to be relating to some of these situations. And then once we've gone through those six things, We're actually going to go into the 12 signs of compatibility that Dr. Terry has told me that we need to be looking at and observing. So yeah, I guess this is just, again, a reminder, like it doesn't have to be every single thing on this list that's compatible. These are more just like key indicators, which are increasing the likelihood of potential success of a long-term partnership. So Dr. Terry, let's get into this. The, The signs that it might be chemistry, not compatibility. Hit me with it. The first sign that it's chemistry, not compatibility, you feel intense butterflies, but it's not just butterflies. You don't feel calm around them. You feel kind of always on edge. You can't eat. You can't sleep. It's not just that excitement. It's actually anxiety. You don't feel grounded. This is a a really clear indication that this is chemistry and you're probably not something's missing in the connection here that's helping you feel safe and secure. Yeah, it's such a good point, isn't it? Like the 
difference on the spectrum of butterflies. And I think that sometimes I feel like if you are going to see someone and you genuinely feel like, you know, that almost like sick to your stomach butterflies before you get there and you write it off as just being like, oh, I'm just nervous. Like, oh, I just don't know them very well. I think that's a sign to look at, look out for as well, because sometimes those butterflies can be so intense that they can literally hijack your nervous system. And I think that before we start doing the work, we don't really understand this concept of safety and how, yes, dating is always going to provide you a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of nerves. It's a slightly uncomfortable situation. You don't know them. You don't know anything about them, et cetera, et cetera. You don't know how the date's going to go. But I think what I've learned from you is that you can go on dates, feel calm and content and have butterflies. And I think what you're talking about here is when it's like, like you can't look at them across the table, like you don't want to eat. Like it's just really like so intense. So I think that is a really, really important one. And the second one, sex, sex, sex only. Let's talk about that sign that it's chemistry, not compatibility. Yeah, I think a lot of people jump into having sex right away and they, you know, once we have sex, we we get a lot of other chemicals rushing through our bodies, oxytocin, more dopamine, and the relationship becomes about sex. We're not taking the time to actually communicate and build an emotional connection. So if your relationship has a lot of passion, but you're spending all of your time naked, making out, having sex, that's a sign of chemistry, but not necessarily compatibility. Yeah, you're so right. And I think that when it is just, you know, physical, 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 chemistry, 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 like naughty messaging, hooking up, like late night drink, then go home together. I think that a sign that it's chemistry, not compatibility is like you don't actually talk about anything other than that. Like the conversation surface level, maybe the conversation is sexually led. I feel like if you are not asking them like, oh, how do you feel about that? Or, you know, if there's a lot of silence in the relationship, not only about them and who they are and what they stand for and what their values are, but also about the two of you. Like, what is this? What do you want in life right now? Where are you in life? Like, where do you want to go in life? Then I think that's also a sign that there's not that much compatibility there. Because if you can't have those conversations, you can never, ever assess compatibility. Now, the third one is one of my favorites. And it's a quote that basically says that if someone was to ask you what you really like about this person and what you answer is something along the lines of, oh, I don't know. Oh, it's hard to explain. Oh, it just feels amazing. Oh, it's just so passionate then that's often a sign that there's just chemistry there, like nothing else other than chemistry and maybe even a trauma bond that's activating your attachment trauma. So I love that. Ask yourself, what is it that you like about this person? What is it that they stand for? And I had this with the guy before my boyfriend, you know, I was like mesmerized and fascinated by him because he was like everything that, that attacked my attachment trauma. But if you'd asked me what it was about him, that I liked, I honestly couldn't tell you. It's just that feeling. It's that like, oh, I just fancy them so much. Whereas with my boyfriend now, I can tell you all the things that I like about him and all the reasons that we're compatible. And, and it's just such a different experience. Totally. And, you know, with compatibility, there's an important element where you admire, respect and like 
the person. And so I love what you just said, because if you can't pinpoint any of those things that you admire, respect, or like, that's a sign that it's chemistry. And there may not be any things that you admire or respect about this person. So yeah, I love, I love number three. It's really important. And I think that ties back to that silence point again, which is that if you're not being healthy in the way that you're pacing the relationship and watching, not expecting and asking questions, then you're never going to know what you could admire about them because it ties into point two. Like you just jump into bed, it's just silent, et cetera, et cetera. And then which ties back to point number one, you're just overwhelmed by the immense butterflies and it all feels so good and so intense, but you're not actually giving yourself space to see if there is compatibility there. So I love that. Okay. So point four, another sign that it might be chemistry, not compatibility is you can't imagine spending your life with them, despite it feeling incredibly good, exciting, whirlwind infatuation. Talk me through what is going on there and why that's more likely to be chemistry than compatibility. Yeah, because chemistry is more in the moment, right? It's about that feeling, about that draw to that person. And I was actually just talking to a client this week about a man in her life. And, and what she said is, you know, it just feels like there's something off. I can't imagine, I, I don't feel like, like I know enough about him to see him in my future. There just feels like something is missing, but we have this really intense chemistry. So when there's compatibility, it's like, you know, this person, you understand what they do all day, you know what their values are, you see how they fit into your life. But if you're not, thinking about those things, or there's just something that kind of tells you, you know, I don't see how this could last long term, but it feels really good right now. That's a sign that it's chemistry versus compatibility. And I think we say all the time that there just comes that point in your life where you need to just be very real with yourself. You know, you just need to say, these are my cycles. And if I continue them I am going to be in exactly the same place in five years time as I am right now. And yes, they feel good. And yes, it's so much easier to continue with something that's familiar and exciting, but it's not actually going to lead you anywhere different if you're focusing on the chemistry rather than the compatibility. And I guess that brings us to our next point, which is point number five on why it's most likely to be chemistry and not compatibility. This point around if you see red flags, but you actually ignore them, like actively ignore them during the dating phase, I guess. Is that the same as you knowing instantly, like this person is not a good fit for me. This is not a good long-term fit for me. And, you know, for all the people that don't want to go and have casual sex out there, knowing like I need to cut this now, otherwise I'm going to get hurt. Sometimes you don't know it outright, or maybe you don't want to know it, but it could be like your intuition's telling you something. It could be consciously that you're choosing to just overlook something, not address something, not ask the right questions. But if you are overlooking red flags or not asking those questions or not telling someone, you know, I didn't like that or this worries me, then you're not with somebody you're compatible with. It means you're focused on short-term chemistry. And likely... This is a pattern for you, but we'll get to that. Okay, now this brings us to our final sign that it's more likely to be chemistry, not compatibility. This is my second favorite one in the list, which is that 
you've had the same feeling before and this person wasn't compatible with you. So Terry's going to go into this one a little bit more detail, but I have been there. You know, I talk about the guy that ghosted me a couple of years back where when I met him, it was like, oh my God, we were just sat across the breakfast table from each other, like couldn't get enough of each other. We're like making out over breakfast. Like it was so intense. He was the one that was like, oh, you're going to be my girlfriend before he'd even met me. I'd love it if you could just explain a little more into this final point, which is about having had the same feeling before and it not working out before. Yeah, exactly. I think you described it perfectly. And it's also not just having the same feeling, but it's creating the same pattern, which is typically if you choose people based on chemistry, you meet, if there's mutual chemistry, that, you know, instant attraction, you jump into something, you start fantasizing about the future without assessing any compatibility, without asking any questions, without really determining, is this someone I could be friends with? Is this someone that could make a good partner for me? Is this someone that's healthy? If you look back over your past relationships, if that is your pattern and you're doing it again, you've just met someone, you're super excited about them, you're talking to all your friends, you told your mom you met someone, you're already way ahead in the future, Probably a sign it's just chemistry and not compatibility. I love that. It's so important, isn't it? You know, this whole, we talk about pacing all the time, but it is just honestly so important because how can you ever know someone if you don't pace it? It's like so difficult to jump into bed with them and be full of those love hormones and bathing in neurotransmitters and just like, oh my God, this person's going to save me and this is it, everything I've been waiting for, that you don't even ask the questions around compatibility. So I think that. This has been very important for us to cover. And I know that we have so much more to say on this, but as ever, we're time limited, which is so annoying. But I know that we're going to jump into like a short episode at some point soon about toxic chemistry as well, because you have taught me so much around breadcrumbing and inconsistency and fantasization and empty promises and all of these things. So We will go into that at some point. But for now, I think it's time to get into compatibility because that is why a lot of people are here. So before we do, do you have anything to say on compatibility before we jump right in? One thing I want to say is some of these things you can assess right away, like before you meet someone on a date or on the first date. But a lot of them are things you're going to have to observe over time. So This is why we talk about pacing, because it really takes time to get to know someone, observe how they respond in different situations, how they treat us. You know, we'll talk about that as well. Like if this is something you can can assess early on or whether it's something you need to kind of observe over time. Yeah, so important. And I think what's also going to be so helpful is you telling us which ones we can ask about and maybe even telling us how to ask those questions, because I know sometimes it's really difficult to do that. So let's jump in with the first sign of compatibility, which is similarity in relationship goals. What do you mean by that one? Yes. Oh, my gosh. So we've talked about this before on the podcast. Anybody that asks you out on a date or you're considering to meet on a date or you're considering dating, you always need to ask this question first. A lot of people don't like to ask this question. But you need to ask this question straight away. And I've been there as well. Like, I remember being on this date in New York before with this guy that I'd literally like matched with on Rhea and I'd like fallen in love with him before I'd even met him. He was like so rich. 
He was in all these pictures with celebrities, had this huge family office that owned all these companies. I was like, this is my soulmate. He's like Chuck Bass from Gossip Girl. I was like, this is my soulmate. And then classic, like we met in person and literally it was like not a vibe at all. And he asked me like, oh, what are you looking for right now? And I, I didn't even know like at that point, age like 26, what that question meant. I was like, uh, uh, like, uh, I don't, I literally said, uh, I don't really know. Like, oh my God, that's so embarrassing. And then I wonder why he just like hit me up that night and was like, hey, what are you doing? Do you want to come over? And then never spoke to me ever again. It was like, of course, because I didn't tell him what I was looking for, it gave him free reign to be like, hey, like she clearly doesn't want a long-term relationship. So I'm just going to hop on that opportunity. And just to confirm everybody, I did not go to his house. Yeah. And the thing is, a lot of people are afraid to ask this question because they don't want to scare somebody away. You're not saying, do you want to have a long-term relationship with me? You're saying, is that what you're ready for? Because that's what I'm ready for. When I meet the right person, I'm ready to invest in someone. And you're only going to scare away people that aren't on that same page, which is a good thing. So you don't waste your time. Um, That is profound. The whole you don't, you're not asking them if they want to have a relationship with you. That's, oh my God, how have we never spoken about that before? That is literally incredible. It's so obvious and simple. But when we ask these questions, we feel like we take the answers so personally. And you're so right. We're not asking about like, do you want to fall in love with me? It's like, are you at the point where you want to fall in love with anyone? So I love that. And I think that we can also just caveat this point one with the understanding that yes, like there are some people out there that will say what you want to hear to get what they want to get from you. And that is why we pace, we watch, we observe. Exactly. So number two on signs of compatibility that you need to assess for are religious, political, spiritual, and money views and beliefs. Now, some of these things may be more or less important to you or the person that you're considering dating, but these are conversations that you need to have. Some people, you know, in the States over here, politics have really divided our country. So some people find that really important. And, you know, there are a lot of dating coaches that say, don't bring up religion, don't bring up politics on a first date. I say, bring them up before a first date if they're important to you. Again, you don't need to waste your time or anybody else's time. And this is why I think it's also so important to like use these dating apps if you're using them to use them smart. You know, if it gives you the opportunity to put on what you want or what you don't want. And I believe that since I've been in a relationship, apparently they've updated Hinge to say what you're looking for or something. They've added something to it. Like use it, own it, champion it. Don't be afraid of it. Like you want kids, you don't want kids, like put that in the bio. And actually a lovely lady in the house last week said exactly that. Like she had in her bio that she doesn't want kids. And the guy said to her like, oh, what a waste of a pretty face or something. And it's like, oh no, like shut up you trying to shame a woman for her decisions, which are right and reasonable. Whatever works for her is her truth. And telling her that like, it's a waste of a pretty face. Like, ooh, no, thank you for showing us your truth about you before we got into it. So yeah, I think just champion you know, these beliefs, whether they're religious, political, spiritual, or money, you know, I think that's really important. I personally have never been in a relationship where we've had any issues around religion or any issues around politics or spirituality or or really anything like that. I mean, 
I have had issues with money in relationships where I've like made a lot more money than my partner and that's definitely caused issues. But I can imagine that that's one that maybe comes down a little bit further down the line. But yeah, things like religion, politics, talk about that straight up. If if it's going to be a deal breaker, you want to know now rather than like sharing your mind, soul, heart, body with someone. So I think that's really important. Okay, so point three, key questions to ask for compatibility is asking them around their plans for the future and what's important to you. So things like what are their views on marriage, kids, and like even geographical location? Like where do they see the next few years of their life taking them? What are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, these things are really important because let's say someone is, you know, wanting to get married or have kids in the next few years and another person is saying, oh, I'm going to retire early and travel the world. Those obviously are not compatible goals. So it doesn't mean that somebody has to have their whole five-year plan, you know, written out or have complete clarity around that. But you want to make sure you're kind of on the same page about what you want in your life, what you're building right now. And those conversations are important to have early on. And also, you know, if kids are important to you and you know that's something that you want, you need to ask that question straight away so that you don't waste time with somebody who isn't ready for kids or doesn't want to have kids. A lot of times we overlook those things. We get in a relationship with someone who has incompatible uh, goals like that. And then we hope that they change. Rarely they do. And we're just wasting our time. That's exactly what I was going to say is I'm starting to get to this point in my life where I look around and I have friends around me who maybe they're just starting to have the conversation around kids because so many of my friends now in my 30s having kids And I'm seeing it firsthand, like relationships where one person doesn't want kids and one person does. And then it's kind of this dance and negotiation of like, well, someone has to, something's got to give here. Someone has to sacrifice something. And I think the saddest thing about it all is that like, with the second that someone sacrifices something, you're ultimately sacrificing your truth. And there's going to be so many issues that, that come with that. So yeah, I think that one is so important. And the same on marriage, you know, some people it's a big yes, some people it's a big no. Um, and yeah, even location. I think that this is one that I've fallen a uh, victim to many times by traveling the world and falling in love with men all over the world is that the truth is, is we all have a home, right? And for the vast majority of us, that home is a very important and special place with some very important people to us. And I think that It's not to say that long distance relationships can't work. And of course, you can set up new lives in new countries and millions of people do that and live happily ever after. But I think that it's something I'm going through now is like, you you just need to be very clear with yourself. If you're going to fall in love with someone from another country, are you okay with the fact that you may never live close to your family again? And it's something that you often don't think about at the beginning. Like I was just so like falling in love and oh my God, and living the dream in Mexico and now it's the reality. It's like, oh, okay. How do I feel about maybe having a baby in Mexico? You know? So I think that's so important to not only ask the other person, but also to ask yourself because sometimes that's where these questions start. Okay. That brings us to point four, which is lifestyle decisions. So what are your thoughts on this? What is covered under that umbrella of lifestyle decisions? So this is really like, how do you live your life? How do you spend your free time? You know, what what do you do for fun, for entertainment? 
are you someone that likes to go out partying a lot? Do you like to go to the clubs? Do you like to, are you more of a homebody? Again, you don't have to be the same as your partner, but if there are things that are really important to you, these are things you need to assess in the beginning. So lifestyle, again, like what you said, Louise, it's important to know yourself. What kind of lifestyle feels aligned for you? And you know, ask these questions so that you can assess what feels aligned for other people and how they live their life and spend their free time. So, you know, if you're introverted, this other person is extroverted, that's not necessarily a deal breaker. Yeah, this is something that I think is really important because despite what everyone will think, I'm actually quite introverted and I spend a lot of time at home on my own. People are like mind blown there. They think I'm the most extroverted person ever. And I'm like, no, I spend so much time alone because guys remember introverted, extroverted doesn't mean like your confidence levels. It just means how you recharge your batteries, like whether you recharge with other people, extroverted, or whether you recharge on your own. And I massively recharge on my own. And for me, I don't want to be socializing all the time. Like I've spoken before on other podcasts, I have a small group of friends. I like having a small group of friends. I don't have a hundred friends. I don't go to huge parties. I don't like spend every week doing four dinners and two lunches and one party and one exercise class. Like that's just not me. So I think that's so important around, you know, lifestyle decisions because yeah, I I don't want to be going out all the time and I don't want to be dating someone that does go out all the time either. So I guess this brings us perfectly to point five. Question five around what you need to be asking around what actually is compatibility and are you compatible is about their alcohol and substance uses. Let's get into that one. Yeah. So part of this you can ask about, right? So if you have a hard line about certain substances or drugs or drinking, then these are those are deal breakers for you. You definitely need to be asking about those. The other piece of it, though, is you need to observe How does somebody use alcohol? How does somebody use substances? And how do you feel about that? Is that aligned with the kind of partnership and life that you want? A lot of times, you know, we've talked about chemistry so often now, but we overlook somebody's excessive use of substances. We overlook certain addictions because we don't want to see it. And we're overlooking a huge piece of compatibility there. I know some people, you know, don't want somebody who, for example, smokes weed every day or maybe at all. So that is something you need to be asking about on the dating apps or on the first date. And again, you always ask with no judgment and leave it open ended. Say, how do you feel about pot? And then let them answer, because if you say how you feel and then you ask, they might mold their answer to be pleasing to you. And it may not be the truth. So once they answer, you can be honest. If they say, yeah, you know, I smoke recreationally or I smoke every day, you could say, you know, absolutely no judgment. I just know what's important to me. And I just don't, that's not something that I want in my life. So I think we're probably not a great match. This is one that I relate to very personally because nearly five years sober now, I just, I don't need you to be sober too, but I just can't be dating someone that's just like, drinking, going out all the time, getting drunk, taking drugs, like for so many reasons, it's just not what feels aligned for me. You know, I am so fine if you want to smoke a doobie every once in a while or like take an edible, like that is absolutely fine. But getting super drunk or like 
I am kind of, I'm okay with weed, but I am kind of anti almost all of the other drugs because I really now understand how incredibly toxic they are and what they do to your neurotransmitters and the way that they're often escaping from reality and, you know, all of those things. So for me, it's not the sign of like a super healthy person that would be doing that at least very, very frequently or at least frequently at all. So yeah, I think that one's really important, but I think you're so right about asking them, you know, rather than telling them your thoughts because people can mold their answers around you, then you don't actually know the truth and you don't find it out until later. So yeah, you're so right with that one. Okay, so point six, question six about what you need to ask to determine your compatibility, their communication style. Now, this is where Dr. Terry is going to come into her element because I wouldn't know where to start with this one. What does that even mean? And how on earth would you go around, uh, I guess, establishing or, or acknowledging what their communication style is? Yeah, so this can encompass a lot of things. And this is probably not a question you ask, but more observation over time. So this can include things like when there is, you know, a difficult conversation to be had or there is a misunderstanding, are they willing to communicate with you? Do they stay in the conversation with you? How often do they like to communicate, whether it's by phone, by text? And how does that match up with you? And how do they feel when you bring concerns to them? And also, how much communication do they need? What do they feel is a reasonable amount of time not to be in communication? Some people may feel like we don't need to check in every day or I don't need to hear from you. And that may or may not be compatible with you. So these are all things you're going to find out about someone over time, which is why, again, pacing is so important. And communication can change over time. So in the beginning, it might be very intense. It might be very frequent. And then, you know, you move into week three or four or month one or two and communication may change. And so this is kind of an ongoing assessment. And can you communicate about communication? Can you say that I've observed that our communication is different or, you know, we didn't talk yesterday. How'd you feel about that? What are your thoughts about that? And can they engage in those conversations? So it's communication style. It's also communication skills, which are important. Somebody doesn't have to be perfect here or like really excel in this area, but are they open to improving is a big piece of it. Yeah. I think this is so important as well, that when you're judging their communication style for compatibility, that you're also assessing your own communication style, that you're bringing something that's reasonable and healthy to the table too. Because I think particularly if you're prone to like an anxious attachment style or like an abandonment wound, you just like want to talk all the time and you want to know where they are because, you know, we've learned that they are the source of validation. Like it's external. The self-soothing comes from them rather than from us. And so I think that's just, you know, just because they don't text you back instantly, it doesn't mean that you're not compatible. Actually, they might just be a healthy communicator and you might be the unhealthy communicator in that situation. If you are constantly replying instantly and checking if they're online and like, you know, sometimes we feel like I've been guilty of this as well. Like you can feel like you're really good at communicating. Like I used to say, I'm so good at communicating, but like 
what that really meant was that like, I'm just very anxiously attached and I'm very good at texting you back very quickly. Like I'm always on my phone and I'm always there if you need me. Like that isn't good communication. That's just like anxiously attached communication. So I think that's interesting. And I think you're so right about how communication styles can change over time because me and my boyfriend, my boyfriend and I, we for sure at the beginning, like texted way, way more than we do now. Now we're in a long distance relationship across time zones and we can go easily six hours, four hours without talking, but that feels so good and healthy. It feels so amazing to not have someone blowing up my phone being like, yo, what are you doing? Instead, he just knows that I'm busy, I'm working and I'll call him when I'm free. So I think that's, that's really important. But I do agree around the like, you know, how do you like to communicate? Some people love to only talk on the phone. Some people like to text and I think it's just about working out like, what are you like? What do I like? And like compromising sometimes in the middle. Because yeah, I think we're learning that from here as well as like, sometimes it's not always about compatibility. Like compatibility can be this meeting in the middle, you know, like the compromise piece. Okay. Point seven, one of our favorites ever, of course. What is your attachment style and how do these work together? And I guess my question for you is like, can you have compatible attachment styles? Like what what's going on there? Are there any that's like a hard no? Oh my gosh. I mean, we have done episodes on this. We could totally deep dive into this, but just for the sake of time, I will say, you know, there's a lot of layers here. We have talked a lot about the anxious avoidant trap. So those two attachment styles are not very compatible. Again, you can ask somebody in the beginning, do you know what your attachment style is? They may or may not. But if they do and they and you know, you're anxious, they're avoidant or vice versa, that's a sign this is probably not going to work or be very sustainable. Okay? Unfortunately, it's usually not that clear cut in the beginning. So you have to take time and observe. Uh, especially if you have an anxious attachment style and you figure out you know, you're with somebody who withdraws and pulls away, that's going to be triggering your attachment style all the time. So it really comes down to compatibility of attachment styles. Anxious and avoidant is not a very compatible style. Secure could probably be with any of them as long as the other people are aware of their attachment styles, own their attachment styles, and are actively working on it. Of course, two secure people are going to be the most, you know, the best match, but a secure attachment style is not the most common kind. So we can hope to find a secure person, but that doesn't mean everything's going to work out. We always have to be looking at ourselves. I think the important piece here is awareness. So you can ask somebody, do you know what your attachment style is? And if they're open to, you know, taking a quiz and discovering that, you guys can talk about how they may work together. But I think in terms of compatibility, the big like red X goes over the anxious and avoidant combination. Yeah. And I know some people just aren't going to want to hear that because we get asked all the time, how can I make my avoidant partner love me more? How can I make him feel more loved? How can I do X, Y, and Z? And yeah, we've got to the point that we're very clear in the answer of that. And it took me a really long time to accept that, oh, you can't change them. And even if they want to change, it's going to be like a lifelong commitment to that. So yeah, I think that's really, really important. Okay, next up, point eight, question number eight that you need to be asking around, is there conflict style? Now, really intrigued 
by this one because I would say that my boyfriend and I are not compatible on this one. And so I guess this is, again, just a reminder, like it doesn't have to be every single thing on this list. It's just like these are the key indicators, like the more of these that you have, if I'm not mistaken, like the more likely it is that your relationship is going to be successful and and long term. But yeah, my conflict style is probably like volatile in this list that we're about to talk about. I'm not actually sure what the definitions are, but I am whatever is like not conflict avoidant. Like I will flip my lid, I'll go all in. Like if I'm upset, you will know, like I'll shout and I'll scream because that's how I learned to communicate as a kid in an angry household. Whereas my boyfriend is, I would say conflict avoiding and more like stonewalls. Like he's not so bad now, but when I first met him, his stonewalling was like literally horrendous. And I was like shouting at him like, is anything going on in your head? Like, what the fuck is going on? And he just like stared at me like my, like, I was like, what is going on? This is like literally mental. But because we're both two healthy-ish people now and we're both in therapy and have been in therapy, we've both become aware of our conflict styles. So now, despite the fact that we just had a huge fight the other day, which you might have listened to at some point on the podcast, that was only our second fight in a year. So I think we've really learned how to navigate. So yeah. Terry, would love it if you could tell us a bit around how compatibility can work in terms of conflict styles. Yeah, well, that was a great example, you know, of how people can be different. But also if, if you're willing to own where you need to do some work, you can move toward more compatibility. So I know we're going to talk about this in another episode, but Gottman actually talked about five different kinds of conflict styles. So just to name them, you mentioned a couple of them, conflict avoidant. Conflict validating. So obviously someone who avoids conflict is conflict avoidant. Conflict validating is somebody that, you know, knows that conflict is a part of a relationship and they have the skills to navigate through that. They don't shy away from it. Volatile is someone who, (laughs) like you were just saying, you know, tends to maybe scream and shout and struggle a little bit with emotional regulation. And then there's conflict, hostile and hostile detached. And those two, we won't go into depth, but basically, you know, you say and do things that are meant to hurt the other person or um, you withdraw from the other person, which is also a really good way to hurt somebody else. So again, this is not something most people are going to know about themselves. (laughs) It's something you're going to discover the first time you have a disagreement or an argument or a conflict. And you're going to learn a lot about someone when that happens, which again is why I say you never really know someone until you have your first fight. You're going to learn so much about the the compatibility between the two of you and also the safety and security and health of the relationship. That's why pacing, once again, is so important. Love that. Okay, so point nine, probably a point of compatibility that most people won't have heard about before is if both parties are flexible and willing to support the other one. What do you mean by this? I think this is an interesting one. So this can mean a lot of different things, but in general, flexibility means we're open to compromise. We're open to seeing our part in things. Accountability is a piece of it. And we want what's best for our partner. So flexibility is a really important quality in someone because you're not going to be dating yourself. (laughs) So are you willing to 
you know, support your partner in things that are important to them, go to events that maybe are important to them, maybe try some hobbies with them if they want you to come along, even if they're not things that really you enjoy or light you up. Flexibility also means like if if they ask you for help or they they need your support on something, are you willing to do that a lot of the time? Of course, you can't always be available to meet your partner's needs, but you know, this flexibility and willingness to try new things with your partner, to be there for them when they need you to support them. And underlying all of this is really you care about the well-being of your partner and you want to support them in, you know, being happy, growing as a person, even sometimes when it's inconvenient for you. This has to go both ways in the relationship. What's coming up for me here is that this is why it's so important. You know, one of the points that we spoke about much earlier in the list, like those core values, the core beliefs, it's why it's really important to identify what those are, because you're not going to be flexible and willing to support someone else if it goes against your core beliefs or your deal breakers. So I think that is really, really important. Like, you know, if they are within the boundaries of like, yeah, green flag, green flag, green flag, even if it's not your own interest or you're not your own hobby, you can either support them in them wanting to do it and not you being involved in it or vice versa. Like, I love going to the gym. I love it. Like, I would go like five, six times a week if I could. And my boyfriend, he just plays football. Like, he used to be a professional soccer player. And so he just wants to play football. It's like, you know, some people see like sports as being just their workout. And I just don't get it. I'm like, I think you should go to the gym. Like you only play football once a week. Like, I just don't think that's enough exercise, like all this stuff. And then I just realized like a month or two ago, no, I need to just acknowledge that this is my view and this is his view around like an interest that we both have. And it's not for me to change him. And I just need to support him on that. And so after that, I've just let it slide and realize like, yeah, this is a battle that like, I don't need to be fighting and I don't want to be that nagging girlfriend. So. Shut up, Louise. I love that. I love that. And we're going to talk more about like accepting someone for who they are as a a sign of compatibility at the end. But I love that example. Okay. The next area of compatibility is around coping mechanisms and how someone handles stress. So again, this could be connected to some of the other things we've talked about, like lifestyle or alcohol or substance use. But basically, how emotionally regulated are both of you? And when someone is stressed, how does it impact the relationship? How does it impact the connection between the two of you? Or how does it impact the health of your partner? So, you know, how somebody handles the stress of life, because stress in life is inevitable, and how they cope, whether they have mostly healthy coping mechanisms, mostly unhealthy coping mechanisms, that's going to be something really important for you to figure out. Again, you could try to ask about it. Most people probably aren't going to be honest. Most people probably won't even know what you're talking about. So it's something you're going to have to observe over time. And also something you need to, you know, be honest with yourself about. When you're feeling stressed, do you go shopping? Do you medicate with alcohol? You know, how do you handle stress? That's, like you said, Louise, something you always have to be assessing for yourself too. All of these things are. Yeah. That's been a huge part of my journey is like the way I used to to cope was just not only like exercising and shopping, which are, I'm not going to say the healthier coping mechanisms because they're not. It's all doing the same thing, just dopamine release and, you know, 
self-soothing, but I also would self-medicate with drugs, with alcohol, painkillers, prescription drugs, weed, you know, you name it. Like I was doing it because I was so stressed and I didn't realize that like there was another way. And now I don't do any of those things. And yeah, sure. I still do the shopping and like, yes, sure. I still do a little bit of exercise, like hardly anything in comparison to what I used to do. And yeah, I love a pizza and I love a Netflix. Like I love that. But I feel like the way I handle stress now is totally different. And I think I couldn't date someone or marry someone that every time they got stressed, they went to the pub drunk, you know, their life away, like drunk to ease their sorrows, drown their sorrows. Like that for me just wouldn't work. And I think that's, yeah, an interesting point is that these ones are hard to ask about. You just have to watch and wait and see. Okay. So this brings us to point 11 on our list of things you need to look out for when assessing compatibility. And that is family dynamics, particularly extended family. So what do you mean by this one? Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, you always hear all the stories about like, you know, nightmare in-laws, right? So this is part of what we're talking about. There's a few different things to consider here. So how does family play a role in your life and in your potential partner's life? How involved are other family members? How often do you want to see your extended family or your nuclear family? And do you, are you both in agreement on that? Do you share similar family values? There are some people that are not close to their families and don't see them a lot, don't communicate with them a lot. And there are some people that are estranged from their families that don't see them or talk to them at all. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are people that are very enmeshed with their families. They don't have a separate identity. They see them and talk to them all the time. The boundaries are very fuzzy. So this is something you can assess in the beginning. You can say, what's your relationship like with your family? If you're just getting to know someone and there is, you know, some like tricky relationships or some maybe toxic dynamics, someone may not be honest about that at first, but you can get a general feel if they say, oh, yeah, every Sunday we go over and have family dinner, you know, or I talk to my mom all the time. You can get some information, but again, you're going to understand over time more what that looks like. And the reason this is important is because we're talking about really boundaries. How much of a role is that other person's family going to play in your life and in your relationship? And what's going to be expected of you as a partner in terms of being a part of the other person's family and vice versa? So this is something that really can come into play. And I think sometimes people don't consider it much at all. You're so right. It can be so impactful on a relationship. Seen firsthand, like in my family, huge, huge family ruptures when people have married in and they don't get on with them and they didn't get on with them. And oh my God, it was like major family drama. You're right. I think it's so important to understand how their family dynamics look. But I also think that, you know, it's okay to acknowledge, like, I think before I used to say like, oh, I'm, I'm really close with my family because I am really close with my family. But the truth is, it's like, I'm really close to my family, but a lot of the relationships are limited and we're deeply triggering for each other. And, you know, that's just what family is. And so, you know, when I got to know my boyfriend, I was just a lot more honest about it. I was like, yeah, I'm really close with my family, really close with my mom, but she does X, Y, and Z. I'm close with my dad, but we've had a very challenging relationship because of X, Y, and Z. I'm 
close-ish with my brother now, but childhood, this happened, teenage, this happened. So yeah, we have a nice family, but you know, we're not the Brady Bunch or whatever. I think it's just, I think it's just nice to be honest. And I think by being honest as well, like encourages the other person to be honest, because honestly, every family is dysfunctional, I swear. Like still waiting to find a family that like hasn't got any issues and just get on like the Brady Bunch. So yeah, I think that one's so important. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can't control whether you're going to fit into the family unit and how you're going to get on with them. But yeah, I have friends who like the in-laws like walk in on them when they're in bed together. And I'm just like, oh my God, there's no boundaries. Like, that's absolutely not okay. I'm like, we'll not be having that in my relationship. Thank you. Okay, so this brings us to our final point, number 12, over to Dr. Terry Mack on the final major thing that you need to be assessing when considering if you are compatible with someone. Yes, and this one is a big one. So if this person didn't change at all, is this somebody you feel you want to be with? Can you accept this person the way they are right now? and not be expecting them to change in certain ways. And the reason this is important is because compatibility, true compatibility in a healthy relationship means that you like, respect, and admire someone. All, you know, and you accept everything about them, even the parts that are difficult to like or maybe be a little bit challenging for you. A lot of times we get in relationships with people and we see their potential and we think, okay, if I can get them to be a better communicator or if I can get them to dress better. And that's really disrespectful. It's really bad boundaries. And it's also setting us up for failure. Because if you really love someone, you accept who they are and you don't try to change them. And so this is a question you really need to ask of yourself and really be honest with yourself. And also, you know, hopefully your partner is asking that, but you need to ask yourself too, do I feel accepted by my partner or by this person for who I am? Can I show up as my full self and we figure out ways to make it work and I feel supported and loved? So can I accept this person? Do I accept this person as they are today? I think that's the perfect place to end because it's probably the most profound and like most difficult question of them all. Like all of the others feel like things that can be changed, that can be navigated on, can be compromised on. But this one, you can't compromise on like, do I accept this person just as they are? Because if you don't, it's not a great sign. And I mean, it's something I've had in so many relationships, like before, if they just did this or if they just did that then we would be great. And as I've got older and as I've gone through therapy, I've realized like we need to accept the other for who they are because otherwise how can we ever expect someone to just love us for who we are too? And I guess that is the true foundations of love. So thank you so much. Thank you to everyone listening. Thank you to you, Dr. Terry, and we will see you all very soon.